he lives it out for the word. So we really have a privilege of hearing Pastor Daniel Chan speak today. Uh, Pastor Roger will be back with us next week. But until then, I ask all of you to put your hands together and give him a warm grace welcome. Thanks, Chris. Well, good morning. It's uh, great to be here this morning and thankful to be here again. I think it's been a, a few years uh, since I was last with you all and I uh, see many new faces, so that's, that's wonderful. Um, a lot has happened in the world since uh, the last time I was here, but it is wonderful to see all of you saints willing to, to meet here together for worship and hopefully eager to hear from God's Word. Uh, as Chris mentioned, uh, I pastor at Redeemer Bible Fellowship down in Mountain View. And I bring you greetings from all the brothers and sisters there. Uh, we are always thankful for your gospel presence here on the peninsula. And we, we pray for you as a church. And it is always an honor to visit and fill in for Pastor Roger, who's been a friend for decades. And um, I'm just humbled whenever he asked me to come and preach God's word to you because I know he, he loves you all very much. Um, why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 and... Our passage today is going to be in verses 17 through 31. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. And I'll begin by reading that text for us this morning. Mark 10, verse 17, it says, As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack Go and sell all that you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Verse 23, And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. A great deal of our casual conversations today with others tend to center around money. What is Bitcoin at now? Uh, How much did that home sell for? 
How much is gas there? How much were those, those grapes at Costco? What, did, did you see what that NFT sold for? What are those guys making these days? Do you, do you have to pay for shipping for that? And I think back over the past few weeks, and I've had conversations about home maintenance costs, home building costs, real estate trends, church building costs, the, the price of food, interest rates. I logged into our brokerage account. I went to the ATM. I listened to the Planet Money podcast. I read about the, the president's spending plans. Uh, I looked at a credit card statement. You know, it's, it's almost embarrassing when I think about it. it. It really sounds like I'm obsessed with money. Yet, I imagine that I'm not too much different than you. Those of you who earn and spend money can likely relate. Uh, even my children think quite a bit about money. You know, my oldest, who's in fourth grade, asked me and my wife how he might be able to make some money not too long ago. So we gave him some chores to do. And, and just like over-the-top parents, you know, we had him start buying some stock with his savings. <laughs> the point is, even kids think about how, they can, how much they can make, what they can buy, how much they have saved. Think about how much their cards are worth or you know, how much that game costs. And from a young age, so much of what we think about and talk about in our society centers around money. We really have an insatiable interest in this topic. And some of us may love to save. Well, others of us may love to spend. But we're all interested in money. And Christians have swung back and forth in the way that they've viewed money over the years. On the one hand, you have the monasticism of medieval Europe. You have the shunning of wealth and the embracing of poverty for the sake of pure devotion to Christ. And then on the other, you have the the prosperity theology of modern Christianity. The idea that God wants to bless you and that the accumulation of wealth is a, a worthy pursuit because it's an indication of God's favor. And of course, there have been many other views that fall somewhere in the middle. But if we're talking about the extremes, as residents of the Bay Area, I think we would probably agree that we are much more inclined toward thinking about growing our wealth than giving it away. Our social conversations tend to center around how we can accumulate wealth rather than how we can abandon it. We tend to pursue prosperity rather than poverty. And because of that, Jesus has a very important word for us today. He tells us that to enter God's kingdom, you must live as one who values Him above all earthly riches. He tells us that seeking riches now can prevent you from seeing riches in the future. And He tells us that you cannot obtain God's kingdom through any riches of your own. If you want to experience the fullness of eternal life, if you want to experience life in God's kingdom, Jesus must be the the focus and the priority and the greatest treasure of your life. And while that might not seem like a great revelation to most of you, it was a, a shocking and it was a saddening message to the people around Jesus in His day. Uh, Today we are in a part of Mark's Gospel where Jesus had been doing some serious discipleship. He had been challenging those closest to Him to really consider what it meant to follow Him. 
He had been correcting their false assumptions about him, and, and that often led to surprising revelations for his disciples. And it happened again in Mark 10, as Jesus encountered a man who prompted him to tackle the topic of riches and the kingdom of God. Uh, this morning, I want you to notice, first of all, that it's difficult to be a Christian if you're rich. In verses 17 through 25, we see that it's hard to be a Christian if you're rich. Verse 17 tells us that Jesus was setting out on a journey. And if you skip down to verse 32, it tells us that his journey was to Jerusalem. So Jesus was was walking, he was headed toward the cross. But along the way, a man interrupted him. Mark doesn't tell us much about him initially, he just tells us he was a man. But later on, we'll learn that he was rich. And if you go to Matthew chapter 19, verse 20, it also tells us he was young. And Luke 18, 18 tells us he was a ruler of some sort. So this man has become known as the rich young ruler. But you shouldn't mistake him for your run-of-the-mill, young, privileged millennial. He wasn't a crazy rich Asian. He was a wealthy but well-behaved Jew. And we notice this in the way that he approached Jesus. He ran up to him and knelt before him. That was a sign of of deep respect. And he asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So this man knew Jesus' reputation. He knew Jesus to be a good man. He also knew him to be a teacher who had seemingly mastered the secret of true spiritual life. So this man had come to Jesus for help. He wanted to know what he should do to inherit eternal life. He, he asked him, in other words, how do I enter God's kingdom? And this man was respectful. He was religious. And he seemed teachable. He was, he was so different than the Pharisees and the scribes who were also religious, but who had pridefully come to Jesus time and, and time again to challenge him. This man wasn't like that. He He seemed like an agreeable Jewish ruler. He seemed to check all the right boxes as he approached Jesus. But Jesus responded to his question provocatively. He didn't say, great, pray this prayer, or even, let me tell you the gospel. He asked the man a question instead. He said to him, why do you call me good? You see, Jesus wanted to tease something out of this man. It wasn't common to call someone a good teacher. Most Jews were, rare, were wary of calling even very respected rabbis good because they feared that they might be identifying them too closely with God. That's why Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. So there seems to be a sense in which Jesus was, was hinting at his own deity here. It seems like Jesus was implying to the man that if he was really the good teacher, then he's God because Only God is good. At the same time, Jesus was showing the man how his understanding of goodness was lacking in many ways. Ordinary teachers and ordinary men cannot be perfectly good. Everyone has sin. No one is good except God alone. So Jesus was pointing this man to consider who this good teacher really was and what he himself, this man, thought about goodness. Because this man was about to claim that he had fully kept God's commandments. 
he felt like he was close to eternal life. He, he seemed to think that he himself was good, just like Jesus was good. But Jesus wanted him to see how he was mistaken about both himself and about the good teacher in front of him. So Jesus said in verse 19, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Don't bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus affirmed the Old Testament law. All these are all from the, the second table or the second half of the Ten Commandments. The ones that have to, doing with love, have to do with loving one's neighbor. There's just one exception. Instead of do not covet, we find do not defraud. And that's why it's not in uppercase letters if you're reading from the, the New American Standard Version. The command not to defraud wasn't part of the original Ten Commandments, but it's still found in the Torah in Deuteronomy 24.14. Well, it's possible that Jesus made this substitute because he knew the man was wealthy and wealth was sometimes gained in those days by defrauding or cheating others, including the poor. And it's possible that Jesus knew that this was a command that would, at least at first blush, seem easier to keep than a command like, do not covet, which is, you know, coveting is more thought-based and action-oriented. So, in this way, Jesus was setting the man up so he could actually claim full obedience. In terms of his actions, the man could honestly say he had kept all of those commandments, which is exactly how he responded in verse 20. He said to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Now, that claim to have kept the commandments probably sounds a little arrogant to us. But what he was simply trying to express was that he felt like he had lived a righteous life before God. As to righteousness under the law, he was blameless, just as Paul wrote about his own life in Philippians 3.6. This man was essentially claiming that no one would have any apparent reason to accuse him of breaking any of these commandments. Of course, we know from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus taught it a deeper kind of righteousness. And to keep the law isn't merely an external exercise, it's, it's an internal one as well. Uh, your motives in your heart also matter. But notice Jesus' response in verse 21. Mark writes, Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Jesus could tell that this man was sincere. He didn't accuse him of hypocrisy. He didn't nitpick his response. Instead, he reached out to him in love. And he did this by telling him the truth. He spoke candidly to him. He, he didn't sugarcoat the situation. He, he gave him an opportunity to follow him into eternal life. And in love, he, he said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And Jesus desired this man's salvation. If anyone is lost in their sin, it's not because Jesus doesn't love them. It's not because Jesus hasn't taken any initiative to invite them to follow Him. Jesus offers eternal life. He offers treasure in heaven, entrance into the kingdom of God to everyone. It's not just annual pass holders who get priority. It's not just his historical donors who get to make a reservation. Jesus invites all to come and dine with Him in heaven. But you have to be willing to follow Him. You see, Jesus got right to the issue at the heart of this man's life. 
And Jesus understood that wealth was the only thing that stood between this man in heaven. He knew that this man, though externally good and respectable and probably likable by others, had not learned to love God above all else. He had kept some of God's commands, but not the ultimate one, which was to love the Lord with all his heart. His money had gotten in the way, so Jesus called him to give it all away. Now, this isn't a universal command. Jesus doesn't call all of us to sell everything we have. We, we know that many of Jesus' followers still held on to some of their possessions. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3 tells us that his ministry was supported by several women who had means. Luke 19.8 tells us that, that the tree-climbing tax collector Zacchaeus, who, who did give his wealth to the poor, still kept 50% for himself. Other Christians in the New Testament were wealthy. They weren't condemned for their wealth. Each person's situation is different. Giving away all that you own to the poor will not guarantee you a place in God's kingdom because wealth isn't the primary object standing in everyone's way toward eternal life, but it is for many. And it was for this man. And so Jesus called him to abandon all that he had. Because he wanted this man's allegiance to him. But the man couldn't do it. Mark writes in in verse 22, But at these words he was saddened. And he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. He probably owned land, probably owned real estate. The ESV says he had great possessions. But he walked away from Jesus sad because he couldn't have it all. He was looking for a way to be saved and to keep his wealth. He thought Jesus might have the answer he was looking for. He he knew he was lacking something. Even though he had done his best to keep God's commandments, he still asked Jesus what he had to do to inherit eternal life because he knew he was lacking. He recognized that. I think he knew he didn't love God with all his heart. This man was young and rich. But he also felt he was missing something. Because he was spiritually bankrupt. He reminds us that even though Jesus doesn't call everyone to sell everything they have, if you aren't willing to give it all up for him, you show that you aren't really ready to follow him. Are you willing to give up whatever you have for Jesus? I know that's a hypothetical question, But it's one that I believe the Spirit is prompting us to ask ourselves from this passage. After the man left, verse 23 tells us that Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It's difficult to be a Christian if you're rich. Look at the disciples' reaction to all this. Mark writes that they were amazed. That is words. Why? Well, they thought it was a sign of God's blessing to be wealthy. They were raised in a kind of Jewish prosperity theology. They were raised in an environment in which people believed, Proverbs 10.22, that it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. And they believed that to be wealthy wasn't merely for your own personal status. It wasn't merely just for your own satisfaction. It allowed you to do good deeds. It 
allowed you to be a philanthropist, allowed you to give to others. So, so to hear the Messiah say that wealth makes it difficult to enter the kingdom of God was jarring. It didn't harmonize with what they had been accustomed to hearing. Something seemed off. They probably thought it was Jesus. But they didn't realize that the money-making melody that they had been enjoying all their lives had always been way off tune. I don't think anyone here wants to be poor. I know I don't. We all have a natural tendency to want to accumulate something, to accumulate wealth. Everyone around us tells us that's that's the right thing to do. Save your birthday and your Christmas money. Invest when you're young. Build equity in your home. Diversify your investments. Consider a rental property. Maximize your deductions. Make your money work for you. Everyone tells us that it's good to be wealthy, except Jesus. He's not against wealth. Again, they were wealthy Christians in Bible times, but Jesus knows that wealth makes it hard for someone to depend on God and give everything to Him. And in verse 24, Jesus doubled down on His initial statement. He said again to His disciples' children, my little ones, those whom I love and care for, so that Jesus was saying, loved ones, hear me out. Now, I know it's difficult for you to understand this and hear this, but, but listen to me. How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Well, this time he didn't mention the wealthy. But the context shows us that the rich were still the focus of Jesus' attention. For he said in verse 25, it's easier for a camel, the largest land animal in Palestine, to go through the eye of a needle, the smallest commonly used opening in those days, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now that's a, an impossibility. And, and some have tried to soften the language here. Some manuscripts have the word rope instead of camel because the Greek words are close in spelling. Uh, some people have also postulated that there was actually a gate in Jerusalem called the needle's eye gate that camels would squeeze through. But there's really no evidence for that. This saying is so extreme, so hard for us to hear, that our natural tendency is to find a way around it. But Jesus said what He said in the way that He said it, to purposely shock the disciples and show us how difficult it is for someone who's rich to be a Christian. Why is it so hard? Why is this so hard? Why, why is it even impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The answer is that riches seduce us away from Christ. Riches seduce us away from Jesus. They, they bring us superficial happiness rather than true joy. They distract us from what's ultimately important. They, they tend to bring along other sins like selfishness and pride and greed They tend to stifle our instincts to be sacrificial. And Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, but for those or but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Even when we aren't absorbed in our things or our stuff or our investments, 
Simply being wealthy is hazardous to our spiritual health. Because it has a tendency to grow that dangerous and deceptive weed of self-sufficiency that can envelop our entire lives. That can make us lose the childlike faith that Jesus so valued and had actually just recently extolled to his disciples in the verses just before this in chapter 10. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's difficult to be a Christian if you're rich. Let me put it this way. It's difficult to to be a Christian if you live in the Bay Area. Let's just be clear that we're rich even if we don't feel like it. Even if we don't have stuff that's as nice as other people at our school or as, as great a job as the people we went to school with or even if we don't live in that particular zip code, even if we feel things are tight because of our mortgage or our rent, we're wealthy. And every one of us is tempted to let riches provide us with a false sense of security and an elevated level of self-sufficiency. Even if we feel like we haven't made it yet, you know, we're not yet comfortable. We still have to, to make it through college or, or pay for a wedding or, or buy a home or pay off a mortgage or see our children gain financial independence or have enough for retirement, even if, if that's how we feel. We can strive after wealth because we feel like it will give us the security we really need when the one who we really need is right in front of us saying, Come, follow me. It's hard to be a Christian if you're rich because riches seduce us away from Christ. So what should we do as those who are rich? Well, first, we have to actively work to not become dependent upon wealth. It's good to regularly feel like you need to rely on the Lord to provide for you. I'm not saying that you have to go into debt or put yourself in a bad financial situation. It's not good stewardship. But I think more of our personal prayers need to be, Lord, help me not to depend on my money or my real estate or my stuff. Untether my heart, Lord, from all that I have. as As you check the stock market, pray, Lord, my stock portfolio isn't what's going to sustain me, it's you. These kinds of prayers should be part of our regular rotation. These are the kinds of, Lord, give me my daily bread prayers that we need to pray in the Bay Area. Lord, remind me that you are the one that I need to rely on each day to provide what I need. Second, we need to invest our wealth. As we get more, we must give more. Our giving to God's work and to those in need, should affect our lifestyle. There should be some things that we don't buy, or some places that we don't go, or some vacations that we dial down because we have been generous with our money. It's hard to be a Christian if you're rich, because riches can easily seduce us away from Christ. But there is still good news, and we find it in verses 26 and 27. It's hard to be a Christian if you're rich, But it's still possible to be a Christian if you're rich. It's possible to be a Christian if you're rich. So Jesus' camel and needle line, that that just floored the disciples. They weren't just amazed. Mark writes that they were even more astonished in verse 26. And they said to him, then who can be saved? 
It seemed hopeless to them at that point. It seemed like the rich were destined to be shut out of God's kingdom based on what Jesus was saying. If a devout, wealthy, blessed, upstanding guy like this dude can't be saved, then who can? Who can be saved, they asked. And that's really the right question. We have to come to the end of ourselves before we can receive God's salvation. In verse 27, we read, looking at them, Jesus said with people, It's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. What Jesus wanted the disciples to understand is that only God can save someone. We can't do it on our own. See, the rich young ruler asked what he could do to inherit eternal life. None of us can do enough good. The Bible tells us that we're all imperfect and sinful. None of us can change our hearts. These are things God has to do. And these are things that he has already done through Jesus. Jesus was the perfect man. He kept all the commandments, including the ones about loving God. And and he died in our place on the cross to be our perfect substitute. And Jesus has sent his spirit to convict us of our sin and incline our hearts to believe in God. The impossible is possible with God. But we have to first embrace our utter inability to inherit eternal life on our own. We have to realize that none of us are as good as we need to be. We have to divest ourselves of the self-sufficiency that wealth tends to bring. And we have to cast ourselves upon the grace and upon the generosity of God. To receive eternal life, to enter the kingdom of God, you must remember that you can't do anything on your own to get it. You need God to do the miraculous in your heart, in your life. But you can pray that God would change your heart. And we'll give you that new life if that is indeed your desire. You don't want to walk away from Jesus with all your wealth, but still sorrowful. With God's help, you can choose to follow Jesus and you can inherit eternal life. It's hard to be a Christian if you're rich, but praise God, it's still possible to be a Christian if you're rich. And finally, if you're a Christian you need to remember that you are richer than you realize. If you're a Christian, you're richer than you realize. We see this in the final verses of our text. In verse 28, Peter reinserted himself into this narrative. And observantly, he said to Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. We ain't like that dude over there. And we might not have been rich like him, but we still left our nets behind to follow you. And Jesus didn't disagree. He affirmed Peter's statement. He told him that everyone who gives up something to follow him will receive back much more in return. He addressed those who have left behind for him a house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms. And and in those days, a, a house wasn't just an expensive investment. It was where one belonged. And brothers and sisters weren't just siblings, they were family, the people whom one belonged to. And mother or father weren't just parents, but one's ancestral connection really as, as in their Jewish lineage to the people of God. Children weren't just loved offspring, but they were financial security for the future. Fields weren't just opportunities for economic potential, but the land that God had promised to his people. It was their earthly inheritance. And Jesus was saying that if you give up the place where you feel like you belong, where the people 
whom you feel like you belong to or your cultural connection or your, your financial security or your earthly inheritance for Him, you will gain far more by following Him. In fact, He said in verse 30, you'll receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. That's a 10,000% return. That's crazy. Better than any cryptocurrency you can invest in right now. This is an asymmetrical trade with a promised return that any investor would dream of. And you'll get it now. You'll get it in this present time or age. You'll get houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms. And notice that you'll get everything. Jesus didn't use or in verse 30 like he did in verse 29. He used and. You might have to give up. Something you hold dear to follow Christ, but you'll get everything back in return and more. And if you're an astute reader, you might have noticed that fathers are missing in verse 30. And that's simply because all those who are in Christ gain a heavenly father that can't be matched by any earthly father. Now, how do you get this kind of return? You might be thinking, I just own one home or I'm not even close to owning a home. Where's my hundred homes that Jesus was talking about? Who are these brothers and sisters? Where's my land? Some prosperity preachers love to go to this passage. They love to talk about how Christians need to give generously to others because when they do, God gives back more in return. And that supposedly leads to an ever-increasing cycle of prosperity. You can really expect to gain more earthly wealth than Gloria Copeland, who's the wife of a well-known televangelist, Kenneth Copeland, I said, give $10 and receive 1000 Give 1000 receive 100000 In short, Mark 10.30, she says, is a very good deal. But of course, this isn't what Jesus is talking about. He was actually talking about the church. In Mark chapter 3, verse 35, he said, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The church is the place where you receive a hundredfold. This room right here, this is your hundredfold blessing. It's where you experience a a family. And even beyond this local church gathering, you see it globally, a huge family of brothers and sisters and mothers and children. The, The church is where you should experience an abundance of hospitality. The church is where you're promised belonging and community and security and new reminders that God will be faithful to provide an inheritance for you. One of my favorite things to do when I, when I get to travel is to worship at different churches and meet Christians from different cultures. That's the first thing on my itinerary. If I'm gone for a Sunday, try to find a good church that I can attend because I know the blessing of being around other believers in a foreign context is just this hundredfold blessing that Jesus is talking about here. There's something sublime about the fellowship that we share with others who are thousands of miles away. If you've gone overseas on missions, you've likely experienced the the immense joy of being welcomed by a strange yet somehow familiar people, other brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what Jesus is speaking of. You gain access to the global family of God. And you also gain access, as I mentioned, to this local family of God. You get the privilege of being part of a local church where homes should be open and 
Resources should be shared. You get to know and love Christians of all ages, all backgrounds. One of the great rewards of following Christ is the church. And I imagine that it has been hard for you, some of you, this past year or so, to feel like the church is a reward. Maybe it feels like you haven't been welcomed, or maybe it feels like it's hard to be part of the church family with things being online or activities being cut for a time. But but don't give up on the church if that's you. When Jesus said that the church is a hundred times better than anything else, we might give up for him. The church is a rich reward for those who follow Christ. And and if you are a Christian, make the church a priority. Commit to a church. Come back to the church. This is where you will experience the greatest wealth on earth. It is the community of God where the love of Christ is shared and displayed in richly rewarding ways. If you hold the church at a distance, you will be denying yourself the greatest earthly return on investment that Jesus has promised for you. Yet it is also important to note that the rewards we experience as followers of Christ aren't all positive. Jesus makes it clear that persecutions are part of our reward as well. We should expect to experience antagonism for following Christ. But in a way, that's also a reward because we get to share in the sufferings of Christ and persecution tends to sweeten any fellowship we can have with other saints. Then Jesus mentioned that In the age to come, his followers will receive eternal life. And finally, Jesus said in verse 31 that those who are first in the world's eyes, those who have earthly riches, will be last on the day of judgment. And those who are last in the world's eyes, those who have given up everything for the sake of following Christ, they will be first. Christians should measure riches in different terms than the world. And by those terms, all those in Christ are phenomenally well off. If you're a Christian, you're richer than you realize. Jesus called a young man in today's passage to sell everything he had, to give up everything he owned to follow him and to receive riches beyond his imagination, both in this age and in the one to come. If you really understand who Jesus is, is and And how great His kingdom is, that's a trade that you should be willing to make any day. Many of you have probably started getting on airplanes again and going through all those TSA security lines again. And you do it likely because you've wanted to get away to a new place with your loved ones or you wanted to go see loved ones that you haven't been able to see for a while. Before you get on that plane, you've got to pass through that airport scanner and you have to put some of your prized possessions on the scanner before you can get to the other side, right? Your phone, your, your tablet, laptop, you're always canceling headphones, you know, favorite shoes, you get the idea, right? And it totally makes sense to give up those things for a moment because you'll get it back and you'll get more on the other side. You'll get to go on vacation. You'll get to be with the people whom you deeply love. And that is the promise for the one who trusts in God. Hey, give up what you find so valuable now for a little bit to gain what is incomparably valuable on the other side. The sad reality today is that we're living in a world where so many are unwilling to put their phones and their wallets in the tray for just a short period of time. 
They're clinging to their suitcases. They they don't trust that it's worth it. It's so silly. They're just like this man. But Jesus is worth it. He holds out eternal life to us. The, The man in our passage was so close to it. He had the right question. He was headed toward the right destination. He had packed everything in his life correctly, but he couldn't take that final step to get through the scanner. When God scans your heart, what's he going to find at the center? Will it be your homes? Is it going to be your crypto wallet, your stock options, your wardrobe, your cars, your furniture? Or, or, or will it be Jesus? How much are you willing to give for Jesus? You should be willing to give it all. Because whatever you give, cannot compare to what you will receive both now and in eternity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that there's a little bit of rich young ruler in all of us. Riches often occupy the center our hearts. We are dependent upon wealth. We trust in it. We love it. And this this has caused us to put, to displace Jesus from the place where he belongs. Father, forgive us and help us to, to once again put Christ in the center of our lives to depend on Him and Him alone. And Father, if You do bless us with wealth, help us to be, well, help us to be generous in giving it away, to be generous in, in good works as we continue to trust in You. And if there is anyone here that does not know Jesus and has not entered into the kingdom, Father, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would find that in Jesus there is a rich reward greater than anything that they can obtain in this world. Father, Father, help us to see the the blessings that you have given us in Christ, both now and for eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.